Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Ruby Rogues. This week, uh, I guess I am your host, Charles Maxwood, and uh, we are talking to Rich, is it Steinmetz? Is that how you say your name? Did I get anywhere close? Yeah, both good uh, in the American sense. Um, otherwise, right, I'm not German, German so... <laughs> um, in German, how do you say Steinmetz. Steinmetz, oh, okay. Yeah, hello. Nice to be here for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm just going to put it out there. We have talked plenty of times. Um, you were in the book club, and, uh, you know, we might talk a little bit about that. Anyway, um, I actually, I think I ran across your blog post back when I was working my previous contract. And uh, this blog post talks a bit about how to test um, loggers. And it was something that I hadn't really ever thought about. And just to give a little bit of context so that people kind of understand, you know, uh, why this became a thing, at least for me. And then I'd love to hear your story about why you even cared about testing loggers in in your own case, right? But Mm -hmm. uh, so what I was doing is I was writing integrations between two systems. So, uh, you know, you have API over here for the company that I was contracted to and an API over here for some third-party thing. And yeah, it was real exciting work, right? I, I pulled data out of one side and I translate it and put it in the other side, right? Yeah. And... Um, right, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating work. Anyway, um, one thing that was kind of interesting about the way that it was set up, though, was that they were using another piece of third-party software to actually run the integrations. And so what they were hoping to do was effectively create kind of an app store for people integrating with their system to be able to integrate with any of these other third-party systems, right? So what they did was like shipping and logistics. And so then you have, and warehousing. And so on the other end, you might have some other ERP system or, you know, some other system that kept track of inventory or this or that, you know, Um mm-hmm. You know, and and some of these were like brick and mortar stores, and some of them were e-commerce, and so right, you know, having it integrate integrate across so you could, you know, send data back and forth to and from Shopify or whatever. So I list some of the other integrations I built, but you've never heard of these companies. I hadn't before I read, wrote them. <laughs> so anyway, um, this system, the way that it worked was, the only log you really had was standard out and standard error on the command line. And so, but we wanted a logged format that would log the data. And then eventually we also hooked into um, another logging system that I can't remember the name of and it'll come up, come to me at some point, right? So we wanted to check that it was logging to this internet system and then it was logging to standard out and standard error using the format that we used and things like that, right? And so, um, since that was the only information we had and it kept a log, right? It kept that as the log, the, the output. Um, logging became kind of important, right? So typically yeah. when I'm doing logging, I'm just, you know, I'm putting stuff out into a file, right? Or Rails is doing it or whatever. And so, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Because ultimately if the information's there and I need it to debug something, then I'll do that. But even then, I typically have like a sentry or ray gun or something set up to capture 
actual errors. So it's only if something happens that doesn't generate an exception, do I actually need yeah. the logs? And so I, I usually just don't care about the logs. But in this case, I did. And so I was out looking for a solution. Hey, how do I, how do I uh, test the logger and make sure that the right information is getting put out there, right? Um, and yeah, I found your stuff. And so, did did you find a a good way to do that when, when you looked into it? Uh, there were a couple of ways that I found to do it. But I'm before we get to that, I'm kind of curious what your story is like. What made you think, oh? I'm going to test loggers, right? <laughs> yeah, most of the time, loggers don't get much love, right? They kind of do their thing. And as you said, you just look into them whenever you need it. And mm-hmm. um, you, you don't really care. I noticed that sometimes, especially um, in this case, I did some test driven development. Mm-hmm. And when test driving something, and it was a very backend heavy thing. In any case, whenever you test something, you want to test the behavior, right? Right. And si- since this was like a very backend heavy thing, mm-hmm. the only behavior in some cases was that there was a um, log output. Okay. And the log output, well, sometimes it was really, really simple. Sometimes it was a little bit more complex with dynamic um, expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were different cases that basically, as an example, there was, there was a conversion in the specific blog post that you found. And this conversion could go uh, in the right way. And then the user would have their duplicated um whatever it was, um, thing that they kind of copied. Or there could have been like seven things that go wrong, in which case the user, well, there's always one thing that happens. The user doesn't get their their copy. But then there's also some part of the behavior that's important to us internally, which is... um, well, what did go wrong? It was really like crucial for us to know so we can um, recover. And we needed like the extra information in the log and it was important for us to log the right thing. So, right. Um, yeah. And this is basically where I started my journey uh, with testing loggers. I did this before as well, actually. And I noticed that there are a lot of ways also to test loggers um in my blog post i proposed one way which is i'm not sure if this is something that from your story that you were looking for because what i'm doing there i'm just making sure that uh, the right logger logs the right thing that basically the the expected output is passed to the logger and Mm -hmm. i kind of trust that it logs to send it out or wherever. Right. But then there is also this notion of you actually want to test that it went to standard out. And I think there's even like a mini test helper that does this. I don't know. I I didn't test that either. I only tested that the information got passed to the logger function. Yeah. 
And yeah, I think th- this is the the easy route, right? To mm-hmm. um, to go and make sure that at least it's going the right way. Yeah, there is. Yeah, you could also theoretically you could also do if it's really important to you, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe you you know there are people who test really everything, 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 um, and right. you could even like check that the file has the right output. Yeah, I mean, that did occur to me, but it felt like overkill, <laughs> right? Checking standard out felt it like is. overkill. Um, it looks like in your examples, I mean, one of the things that I ran into was um, I was just using the Ruby logger class because mm-hmm. I wasn't in Rails. Um, now, it works basically like the Rails logger class. So, it, you know, the interface is pretty much identical. It's not... A stretch, but yeah, um, it looks like you were using Rails Logger. And then the other thing I'll throw in is that um, you you were using Minitest, and I was using RSpec. So yeah, <clears throat> that can also lead to different solutions. But in the end, I yeah. think it's a little bit more or less the same uh, mm-hmm. in terms of. Yeah, you stop this thing out and you expect um, this and this input to go to uh, Ruby log method or whatever yeah. method or instance you used. Yeah, I, I just saw there is a assert log method in mm. uh, in Minitest and you give it a a string as a parameter, uh, as an argument, and then inside of the blog, uh, block, you can uh-huh. um, run your your code and it tests for basically it asserts mm-hmm. things, think the the right thing got blocked there. Yeah, so this is kind of built into mini tests and I used it in, in one of my testing workshops for bootcamp that I, I, I did, but I don't know if RSpec has a similar thing actually. Yeah, um I don't know. I didn't know that Minitest had it. Um so yeah. I was I was testing it the way that you were as far as um you know just doing uh m- mine was a little more involved. I I actually would create a mock. And so I would use the double method in RSpec to create a mock of the logger. Mm-hmm. And then I would just say it should receive info with, you know, whatever line. And mm-hmm. so then if I had the formatting built into my logger, right? Because I just, I created my own logger class. And... I totally cheated. I made it into a singleton. I know people are throwing up their mouths when I say that, but um, <laughs> what it meant was that I only had to load it one time, right? So I could go and I could tell everything, hey, include logger. And then when I did logger.new or whatever, or logger.instance, I think is what it is for singletons, right? It just, I didn't have to reinstantiate it because it already existed in, in the program. Um, but yeah, so yeah. then I just, it always returned that double or that uh, mock. And then from there, I would just test it. And I would say, hey, did it receive this method message? And 
What's interesting is, is that I could also mock the Ruby logger. And so um, I would pass the message into the into my logger, my custom logger, and then I could test that the Ruby logger actually got the formatted message with the data that I, right? Because it reformatted it and put a timestamp time on it and stuff. And so I could test mm-hmm. them both. But yeah, I don't see anything in our spec that does the assert log. So I, I had to, I had to do uh, test doubles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Mm. Did you use like the the singleton in your app? So basically, all the logs went through the same instance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of, of the logger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what I did here, what I've done here is, um, I've use some uh, dependency injection there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't initially my idea. I, in Rails, you know, you can just do like Rails logger. logger. Right. And then does La- Rails logger actually every time create a new instance? I don't know. I actually I think so because, because I ended up uh, I might be wrong now, but I ended up uh, finding it useful to have this as um, dependency injection the, the logger itself because mm-hmm. um, I remember at least in our in our case um, if I didn't do that then basically there was it was two different loggers um, using mm-hmm. like Rails logger and then you could what you could do of course you could do um, Rails logger any instance or something like that, mm-hmm. and which would be kind of a mock as well. And then you it would get the method and yeah it would just work for for any. But then the dependency injection allowed for uh, using the exact logger. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, and so and for those that are, of... aren't familiar with in de- with dependency injection, effectively what we're talking about is, um, and you can see it in the blog post if you want to go read it, folks, but uh, yeah, you have a keyword argument that's logger, and it defaults to rails.logger, but what happens is, yeah, then you can pass in the actual logger you want to test against, whether that's a test double or an object that's stubbed out, and you can get the behavior you expect without having to wrangle anything extra or figure out how Rails works. Yeah. And you end up doing a lot of this um, when you do TDD. Mm -hmm. Because, um, and like, quote, unquote, good testing, because uh, it's like, it's said to be not an optimal thing to... Uh, run any instance uh, anywhere. Um, th- there's a saying that if you have an, any instance somewhere or like a mock that you have a design problem, m- most probably. And in this case, though, it was useful. And first, in the beginning, I didn't go for for the dependency injection, but in a review, we figured out that mm-hmm. would be a good thing because in this particular case, we also the logger was also 
supposed maybe in future to be uh, configurable. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, in this case, whenever you have something that's um, configurable and can be called from like, several callers, can be good to to make it like a dependency injection instead of instead of like a hard dependency inside of the instance. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, most of the time, so I've seen it. I've seen dependency injection used, like you're saying, for testing. I think the other place that I've seen it is um, Angular uses it pretty heavily. And okay. So, um, yeah. But, you know, and so you can drop different services in and swap out API systems and stuff like that. So, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it makes sense here because, yeah, then you can just, you can control what logger you're using and which APIs you're expected to hit. Yeah. I'm curious, you, you said that you needed this kind of kind of a thing, but you usually don't test logging because you just use it whatever comes out. Um, but you needed this in this particular case because there was a little bit kind of a team requirement for that or yeah yeah, so the the logging output was actually significant to being able to check the work that the work yeah. was done, right? It was you know. The, the logging was actually saying we grabbed this object and translated it and put it here. And then we mm -hmm. grabbed this object, object and grabbed it and translated it and put it here. And then after a while, we actually it was all evented. And so then it was, hey, we picked up the next event and triggered it and executed it. And, you know, it did its thing. And so if so, the, the system was... I have, to, I have to say, so the system they were using, and I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it wasn't super reliable. And so that was the other piece of the of the issue was that um, you would have weird mm. uh, issues just running it, right? Mm -hmm. um, they had a hard 10-minute timeout. And so at 10 minutes, it literally would just kill your... I think it was running on Docker or something. I think it just killed the whole uh, container. Yeah, I mean, midstream just right. And so, if you wanted to know if you had 10 million records to get through on a run, right, it would batch them through, but you wanted to know how far it got and, you know, that it picked up the next one on the next run. And so, you know, and then it properly logged because it was actually, you know, keeping track in another system. We finally built that. We, we built all these systems to compensate for the unreliability of this main system. But, you know, eventually we were logging to the other system that the event was completed, right? So that it would not trigger again. But yeah, um, for a long time, I mean, that was the only way to know was to go and actually search the log. And so, yeah, you know, they'd go look in the one system and, oh, it's not over here. So then they'd, you know, they'd look in the log and say, did it grab it? Did it move it? And the answer was usually, yep. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> or, hey, there was an issue putting that one in because the network went out in the middle of it, which happened more than once. 
So yeah, so it, it was a critical component to being able to communicate about what was getting done for the team. Yeah. So, uh, did you, by the way, have you worked a lot with mini tests before? I have. I have. So, uh, the, this last contract, they were our spec. My current contract is our spec. But before that, when I was working for Morgan Stanley, um, all of all of our tests were written in mini, mini test. Okay, some maybe of them, you can. Some of them were written in the you know class, and then def test whatever whatever, and some of them were mm-hmm. written with mini spec, you know syntax, and so I've used them both. Yeah, within the last year three. Maybe you can refresh my memory because I'm actually on my first. Um, well, I'm doing it now for for one and a half years um, with my current contract. I'm writing almost only mini tests and also my personal mm-hmm. project. And before that, I, I did one and a half years RSpec. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of examples in my blog posts where, well, the logger logs, calls the, the info method three times, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's always, I kind of send an info to the center up. Right. And so in mini tests, I really kind of struggled, especially in the beginning with the syntax where you, and maybe there's a better solution to that. And I kind of think it's just more readable and more workable in our spec, but maybe it's not. But when you do these mocks where you say logger expects the, uh, like info mm-hmm. three times, and then you need to say with, and then you need to pass a block, right? In which you, um, well, how do you say it to the words where um, you have the in the block you have the parameter as as the actual string mm-hmm. that's passed to the to the info method and then you need to kind of compare it with inputs that you expect and for this you need like an array where you put in the inputs and mm-hmm. you need to shift it uh it's probably very complicated to explain it in words and right but well i'm looking at the code so i i kind of follow what you're saying um, okay. and to be honest, I mean, a lot of this is just going to come down to taste, but yeah, you know, so essentially, yeah, you wind up, um, looping over the array and telling it that, yeah, it has to, um, have an expected value that matches, you know, the next thing in the array. Yeah. Typically what I wind up doing, unless I just have a really long list of things, in which case I start looking at my test and evaluating whether or not my test is actually testing more than I need tested, right? Because you don't have to test every mm. minute detail of everything, right? You just, it has to be able to give you confidence that your code is correct. And so, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I've done this where I've, I've put outputs, you know, strings or values, objects, you know, Rails models into an array, you know, used a factory mm. to create them. And then, um, yeah, 
Typically, the way I've done it, though, is I actually just loop over the array and then call, uh, essentially, in your case, you know, logger expects to be called with info three times or without the three times, right? Expects to be called with info with the the first, you know, with the item as I loop over it. And uh, often, um, it just wants those to be in order. Uh, mm. In our spec, that seems to be what I remember. And so if I call that the, the yeah. logger expects to be called with the value and then logger expects to be called with another value and then logger expects to be called with another value, as long as those values are in order, it's okay. And so I often won't even use the loop if I'm calling it three or four times. It's when you get into, okay, I have a dozen of these, right? Then I start looking at the loop and going, okay. I'm willing to sacrifice the readability of having the string right there where I'm asserting something in order to keep the test concise. But Yeah. Yeah, the thing is, I also remember doing it, what you are saying, and it seems to me like the more reasonable thing to do. But at least in this, um, I'm using here Mocha library and mini test, right? So at mm-hmm. least with these, technologies you end up if you have um two expectations basically two mocks and the the mock library calls it a mock right so if you have two mocks with the same method name it can determine kind of which one you are referring to or it takes the, the the first or the last or something like that and then you are bound to the syntax of saying logger expects method name so mm-hmm. many times or an arbitrary amount of times or whatever. And yeah, you, you end up with this whole yeah block thing and comparison thing with, with the mm-hmm. array, stuff like that. Yeah, it's yeah I, I opt for readability over um, concision in my code as much as I can. I mean, if, mm-hmm. you, if you have a hundred things that you're testing, your test is probably way too big for one. Or some of those tests should be moved into unit tests, right? And so then your integration test, you're not testing that it's logging a, you know, a bunch of times. You're just testing the basically the back and forth between the programs or between the elements in your code. Um, but yeah, I, so I don't mind having long test methods or long test blocks, right? In order to just be absolutely clear, this is what I'm looking for. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, doing a loop or something like that, a lot of times that, you know, somebody who's been doing Ruby for 10 minutes can figure it out. So, yeah. Yeah. In the beginning, you also uh, laughed a little bit about me saying that I love the API stuff. But I think at least I actually meant it. Um, like APIs oh. are one of my <laughs> one of my um, APIs are yeah. interesting. But yeah, go ahead. Sending data around, yeah, say, sending data around that's like too simple or too like mm-hmm. r- rough rough work, right? Sometimes it's it's rough work. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So the issues that I had were basically two problems. One was that the um, API documentation 
I was going to say it was poor documentation, but it wasn't actually correct documentation. And so when it was wrong, it, it cost me days to figure out what the difference was. Um, yeah. And reaching out to their support, I would get a reply about a week later. And so by then, I'd usually figured it out. And, oh, and wow. on the occasion where I hadn't, right, I'd been banging my head against the wall for a week, and that was frustrating. But the other issue is is that, yeah, I mean... If if you have a straightforward API that you're translating data from into another straightforward API, it's really not that interesting of work because it's literally go get this JSON and go translate it to this other JSON, right? And so you're not doing work that's really that interesting except for occasionally the mapping gets a little bit hairy. And so that's kind of fun because then you're attacking this, oh, how do I get this data that they put on this entity, you know, they store it in this nested entity in this way and it's weird. And so, yeah, you have a problem to solve, but yeah, I just, I didn't find yeah. that interesting. But yeah. working with APIs itself, that's fun. Like right now, I'm working on expanding. So there's an active campaign gem. Um, active campaigns and email system that I use for top end mm-hmm. devs. Right. And so I'm going to start, if you're on my list, you're going to start getting emails from me again. Yay. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so what I was working on was in Top End Devs. If you go to the Top End Devs main site, there's a form there that you can put your email address in and it'll send you an email that says, if you use this RSS feed link, then you can get seven episodes of a um, otherwise unavailable podcast that'll teach you how to advance your career and build momentum in your career. Right, this is something that I've talked nice. to a, dozens of people about, and it's like I feel stuck. I, I don't see how I'm going to advance in my career. I want to be senior developer. I'd like to get paid more, right? And so um, I was like, well, hey, you know, do these things. You'll build your skills. You'll build your network, and you'll build your personal brand, and people will hire you. And so okay. you know, yeah, there are seven or eight episodes. I'm finishing the last of them tonight, um, and then I get them all posted and stuff. But anyway, so if you okay. put it in. I want the email to go out with the RSS link, but then I also want to subscribe you to a campaign, an active campaign that says, hey, here's episode one, and here's what it's about. And then you get episode two, and here's what it's about. And so I had to connect to the active campaign API, and all of the active campaign gems that I could find were out of date except for one, and all that <laughs> one had really done was it had taken your API key for active campaign and translated that into a token and then basically gave you convenience methods on REST client, I think is what it's built on. To, mm-hmm. But you still have to specify. So you don't tell it, I want to create a contact. You tell it, I want to post to the endpoint called slash contact with this JSON data, right? And then it just takes care of the auth part of it for you. Well, mm-hmm. I want to be able to say, active campaign double colon contact.create, here's the data. Right. Mm, and yeah. So I've been building on top of that. Right. And so that kind of API works kind of fun because it's like, it's like, hey, how do I make it do a thing? Right. How do I go and, uh, you know, how far can I take this as far as automating this process? So that that's fun. Yeah. 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 At my current uh, company, Webinar Geek, we, it's a webinar SaaS software mm-hmm. and we do quite a bit of, Integrations, also one of them right. is also active campaign, and it's um, 
Yeah, it's kind of, I also find it fun to also find the right wrapper around mm-hmm. um, the API. And then, yeah, like you said, make, make it do the right thing. And that's, that it looks the right way on the other end right. for the user. The, for your personal kind of project, by the way, I was today at Top and Devs uh, on the homepage and I watched the video. It looked really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I also left my <laughs> email there. For yeah, for the API that you are integrating now, like do you do you do some testing? Um, what what's your approach generally, maybe in terms of testing APIs apart from loggers? <laughs> I'm probably gonna make some people sad because I don't love all of the options. And to be perfectly honest, right, if I'm running my tests, I don't want it hitting a live API somewhere. And as far as I've been able to see, like with Active Campaign, they don't really have a sandbox setup. Like when I'm writing stuff against Stripe, they, you know, I put in a test key and it it does the stuff, right? And so um if I'm doing like a full on integration, hey, this plays nice with Stripe and I know that it plays nice with Stripe, it's because it will go do stuff on Stripe, right? Um, but the problem is, is that those tests tend, tend to take longer, right? Because it's talking over the internet and it's, you know, and so I have to wait for a response and then, you know, what have you. And it doesn't take too terribly long, but if I have an ex- a large number of tests, then it will take a while, right? Um, so yeah. I've used VCR um, as a gem and there are things I like and things I don't. Um, if mm. I remember correctly, the last time I used it, you could actually automate it to so that every like 10 days or every, you know, however long yeah. or however many tries, it'll, it, it'll go get you a different, it, like it'll delete the cassette, the JSON file and make a new one. And so yeah. Yeah, you're maybe, never maybe, that maybe. far out of date. Maybe for context, like VCR, um, right. does record the actual, um, API requests into the files mm-hmm. and saves it uh, basically in your repository. And then all subsequent tests will use this YAML right. file. And yeah, it's called the cassette. And then, yeah, you can automatically re record it. Yeah. Sorry. Right. You no, I appreciate it because, yeah, I always forget that, yeah, we have people that are new to Ruby even these days, right? Um, and so, sure. yeah, it's, it's good to remember. Um, but yeah, so I've used VCR and there are a lot of things I like about it. Um, but typically the way that I approach it, because that's one level of testing it, right? Because effectively you wind up testing it at the level of using HTTP, HTT party or rest client or net HTTP, right? So that's, that's what VCR is testing is, you know, Hey, you know, at the lowest level, here's the data you get back, and then here's how you, you know, so you're you're testing whatever integrations live on top of it from there, right? So if you have like what I'm working on, where it translates active campaign responses into objects that I can, you know, I have a bunch of convenience methods on that I can do stuff with, right? So I can test those, and I can say, okay, get me the thing, and it just, you know, it rehydrates a cassette, right? Um, yeah. But typically, what I have is I have some layer on top of the API request, like the direct 
here's the path, here's the data, here's the auth, right? So go make the request for me. I have something sitting on top of that, right? And so in this case, it's um, I forked the Active Campaign Simple client. I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. what it's called, but it's something like that. That that gem, mm-hmm. right? So I have a fork on it on on GitHub, and I've just barely started adding this stuff. And so uh, I probably either try and PR and contribute it back, and then if that's not the direction that the author intended it to go, then I'll just fork it and make his client a uh, dependency of my client. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or just keep just... things as they are and then just deviate where I want. But anyway, so yeah, so I've got like a contact class on top and I've got a tag class on top. And, um, and so, you know, I have a method on contact that's add tag, right? And so then it goes and it makes mm-hmm. the, the call to contact tag. I don't, I don't know why I shouldn't complain about their API, but I don't understand why Active Campaign doesn't have a create contact with a tag option on it, so you can just do it in one call. But they don't, right? So I have to, I have to create that, and if the tag doesn't exist, I have to create it, and then I have to add put them together. Yeah, you know? or I can go add them through the UI, and then you know. But anyway, so, um, so yeah, so then what I wind up doing is I just wind up testing that level of thing and then yeah i use some form of i wouldn't say it's dependency injection so much as it's um so typically i have like a retrieve method and a and a new method and so the new method will take the data structure the json um from the request and so what that means is that if i want to unit test the uh you know, the contact class and make sure that it's giving me the data back or what have you, or makes the proper call under the hood, then I can mock out the call library because I assume that it works, right? I assume the HTT party or REST client does the right thing. I'm not going to test that. They test that, right? Um, I test that when it doesn't work as I expect is basically when I hit it. So, yeah, so I I just stub that sucker out so that it doesn't make a call out to the endpoint on the other end, and then I'll test everything in there. And then, yeah, usually I'll have some level of integration test that says, hey, if you retrieve this, it should behave this way. And But then I'm not testing mm. every method on there. I'm just testing, hey, I got data back as I expected, and I'm getting, you know, you know, this this contact with this information and this stuff. But even then, um, it's tricky, right? Because a lot of times you're doing authentication that requires secrets, right? So you have an API key or you have, you know, like a public key and a, and a secret key like Stripe does or something like that, right? And you don't yeah. want those in your tests. And so what you have to do is you have to give the user a way to configure it with a .end file or something so that they can run the tests on their own system but then you also have to give them a method. And this is this is why I don't love some of this stuff is because then you have to give them a way of effectively seeding the data into the system in the first place in, in an easy and repeatable way in order to do it. Or you wind up um, having those VCR cassettes and, you know, just mm. making sure that they're checked in so that when they run it, right, it always uses the, the stored data. 
But the other issue you run into with VCR is that a lot of times, like for me with the, the you know, I'm doing developer training. And so I don't fall under any regulations other than like the, the generic ones like GDPR or uh, California's privacy law. I think Virginia passed a privacy law here in the US, right? So I have to comply with mm-hmm. those if I want people in those areas to buy my stuff. But I don't have to comply with like, uh, FERPA, which is student privacy in the U.S., or um, you know, I I use Stripe for my payment system, so I don't have to fall under PCI compliance, right? Because I never that data never hits my system, and so I don't have to protect it. But um, it's possible for me to run a VCR against a system that does pull back some kind of like student data or something like that, right? And so I have to be Mm -hmm. careful from there, right? Because I don't want to give away anybody else's information either, right? Now, if if I always hit and I always get a contact that's me and it's my information, right? I can give that away if I want. But yeah, you know, if I have it hit active campaign is the example we've been using or something else and it pulls your information and puts it in a VCR cassette, then that's not okay. And so you have to play... This is the this is the issue that I run into, right? And so, um, sometimes what I do is I just pull the VCR cassette in once, and then I modify the data before I commit it, and then I just tell it never to refresh it. But the problem you run mm-hmm. into with that is then, if the API changes, or if the data output changes then you're no you're testing for a scenario that's no longer valid. And so yeah. it's it's a tricky thing to handle. Um the other thing that I have done though is I've stubbed out um doing the HTT party request or the REST client request and then effectively just testing the return values to make sure that they they are what I want, right? So if I'm only pulling the contact email address, name, and phone number, then I only test those fields. And that way, if the overall response, they add other fields to it or things like that, I just, I'm just not testing those, right? So as long as those three things remain consistent, then I'm okay. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, maybe have Basically. some live tests off to the side that I run just to make sure they run without errors. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so those don't run without my keys in there. Yeah. Okay. You have like two free approaches, basically. One that yeah. you would go with maybe for as a heavyweight solution, um, doing the VCR thing, because it needs some setup, it needs additional work if you are on a team it also right. needs like additional education it's kind right. of a little bit of a mind shift and then mm-hmm. for yeah, typically i stub and... it first but yeah i'll, I'll yeah. go to vcr okay. the other approach the full approach if, if it warrants it and sometimes it does yeah okay and then yes yeah, stubbing would mean you have your client so to say that mm-hmm. talks with the api for example the mm-hmm. active campaign jam gives you a client that has all these methods create this get right. this and then you make sure 
um, it's not like you stub it. It's not making the the request, but you give it um, the parameters. It gives back a compatible whatever. data structure on the other end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It can be like an object or whatever active companion returns, like a hash or an object, or then you have to kind of right. um, and implement it yourself. Right. And so typically what happens there is like the HTTP, HTTP party, keep wanting to say HTTP party. I'm just not going to worry about mm -hmm. saying it right. And you all know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the HTTP party response is its own object, right? And so it responds to its own things. And so I have to stub out the response and say, you're going to return an object that responds to the same things as the response object from HTTP party, right? Uh -huh. And and so, you know, whatever calls I'm doing internal to my library, they all get responded to by the stub because Ruby does duck typing, which is awesome. And so mm. um, it, it's kind of the reverse of uh, dependency injection, right? It's like, I can give you any object as long as it responds to whatever I'm calling against it. And so I just make sure yeah. it's compatible with my stuff. Um, and then I hope it doesn't go stale. And yeah. mostly that hasn't bit me. Um, typically, what gets me to reach for something like VCR is if they are consistently iterating on their responses or if the response is exceptionally complex and I have to deal with the complexity then then I'll then I'll grab a VCR and say hey, just store the whole thing um, mm. and then yeah I do like to run against a live system periodically but sometimes sometimes the systems are so complicated it's just not worth trying to do it right the the return on the return on your time just doesn't make sense and so if it's it's a fairly simple API and you know I it's mission critical that I have the sanity check, then yeah, then I'll say, okay, you know, every week you're gonna run these tests too, and they hit the live system and we just make sure that they're still getting back what we expect. But typically then yeah. I have some dummy account or like with Active Campaign, I'd have a handful of contacts that are tagged with a specific tag. It's just a testing tag, right? And so I know mm -hmm. not to not to change those, right? Yeah. Because the test is going to goof with them. And then anything I change from the test, I change back at the end. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I always create new accounts, basically. Yeah, sometimes and I don't want to pay for an extra account. If, if, you can, if oh, I can do yeah, that, if that's what space, I do, right? But okay, sometimes... Space, yeah. Interesting. yeah. Some sometimes it's like, hey, yeah, you can have another account. It's thirty more bucks. Like for testing, no. no. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, this is the the issue with smaller APIs, whereas bigger APIs always have some development um, account. Like I don't know, Stripe, Salesforce, right? They always yeah. give you. Uh, yeah, they'll like give you a sandbox. Version. I think PayPal. PayPal, exactly. you can set up a sandbox. So yeah. yeah. Uh, but in those cases, the value of using VCR is again like, like what you said, right? It's considerably lower because their APIs are inherently very, very um, stable. They're very stable. Yep. So, and the other down, thing is, is that 
they're also widely used enough to where the the gems handle pretty much everything. So I'm just testing everything that I put on top of that gem, right? And I just stub mm-hmm. out the stuff I get from the gem. So I don't even have to worry yeah. about the API. Yeah. Yeah. It, sometimes the the good or the nicer thing of still using VCR or an advantage is that you need to write less code, uh, mm-hmm. like less stop code, because it records once, it's yeah. all there. And uh, yeah. if your method does 10 calls, and you te- try to test drive it or to change it, you you always have these stops that you need to maintain and write on right. the way. So this is like the the disadvantage of using stops. But, yep, absolutely. Yeah. And it's that that's why a lot of it just depends. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, people look for the silver bullet, there really isn't one. And sometimes you just kind of get stuck in this place with the API where it just sucks because it just, you know, there's just not a nice way to do what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I've I've given feedback to places like, you know, your system is no fun to work on, right? And, you know, it's like, hey, if you change these handful of things, right, keep the old APIs so that anybody using them can still use them, but create these nice APIs, right? Put it out there as your 2.0 or put it out there as, hey, you know, we had some, you know, you can tell them I'm an expert and just say, hey, we had an expert tell us that these these things would make it real real convenient to work on. So we're adding these endpoints, but the old endpoints work and anything that depends on those endpoints will continue to work. We're not doing anything with them. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah changing APIs is like its, it's yep. own, own story. Have you ever run into cultural, like team cultural things where you would like to do testing in a certain way, test your loggers in a certain way, or test your APIs in a certain way, but um, then it's kind of, you see that there is, it's it will be difficult to adopt in in a team. Have you run, right. maybe may something like a VCR or something? Uh-huh. So, typically, when I'm on a team, they either have something that's already in place, right? And so, Mm -hmm. if that's the case, I can just come in and say, hey, I'd like to do this, and everybody just kind of goes, all right, right? Most people are willing to at least try it. Um, Or... And this is the much, 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 much more common case. They're not testing. And if they ever did, those tests are old. And so in that case, I can do whatever I want. But the problem is, is that since I'm the only person running the tests, if somebody else breaks the test, then I may complain and not get any traction on getting it fixed. Oh, yeah. So That's tough. And getting buy-in for from that level, it's hard because 
effectively they look at it and they see where things are at and all they see is a ton of work that doesn't actually move things forward. And no matter how many times you explain to them, hey, look, having these tests run is a sanity check that we won't break stuff and it allows us to move faster because at the end of the day, it keeps us from adding technical debt in a number of meaningful ways. And so we ought to do it. It just, they either believe it or they don't. And and by believe it, not not say they believe it, right? They actually feel it, right? They they feel the momentum that they get from it, right? Um, and one example of this, um, and it was with this last client, right? They had, and I'm not going to go into all the issues in the code base, right? And, I mean, it worked and, you know, got the job done. Mm-hmm. But they had a bunch of globals throughout the, the program. They had... Uh, I think the method was 150 to 200 lines that did most of the work. And it still farmed stuff out to other classes. Um, You know, just stuff like that. And so, you know, I put tests around a lot of it and then came in and cleaned up a lot of it because it made it easier to test, but it also made it a lot easier to read and work on. And so all of a sudden, our velocity went up because of the positive changes in the code. Right. And so sometimes it's not just, hey, we're confident in our changes and therefore we can move faster. But it's it was also we could find where stuff got done because it made sense where to look for it. Right. And the code was easy enough Mm -hmm. to follow to where if you didn't know, you could find it real easy. Right. It's like, oh, well, it's obviously going to be part of this process. And then you look at that. okay, it's going to be part of the second step of the process okay, this is making a direct call to a class that says that it does exactly what I'm looking for it to do, right? You know, mm-hmm. and you were on the book book club. Were, were you on the book club when we talked to Bob about yeah. clean architecture? You know, a lot of this stuff comes out of clean no, code. No. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of this stuff comes out of clean code, right? So it's named well, it's neatly partitioned into components and, you know, all the stuff that we talked about uh, there. But yeah, so, you know, it it makes a difference in that way as well. And people kind of have to see it to understand it. Um, so getting people to buy into testing, yeah. I, I mean, I just went and did it when I was waiting for them to answer a question I had. Or I went and cleaned it, cleaned it up when I was um, hung up on something and waiting for the support on one of the APIs to get back to me. Or things like that. Mm. And it was a pretty massive... I didn't get it completely done. And in fact, when I left, when the contract ended, um, I submitted like six PRs, right? Because I just kept finding and cleaning more stuff. And so I was like, hey, this is going to get you like 80% of the cleanup that you needed, right? But yeah, you know, them seeing it, it was like, oh, you know, you saw some light bulbs go on. But yeah, getting Mm buy-in is, if you're already doing testing, Typically, you can say, hey, I'd like to try this in our testing. And people are like, well, okay. But if you're, mm-hmm. if you're not, then they don't care what you do unless somebody else is running the tests as well. But it's also hard to get them to see the value. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny that you say it was the testing buy-in because I'm in my bubble uh, of... Uh, having worked in teams mm-hmm. 
at least in the Rails world where they were into and Ruby world where they were into testing and mm -hmm. it's also said that um, the Ruby community is a lot into testing and then yeah I, every now and then I hear about Rails projects or Ruby projects where there is no tests and I'm right. just like I, I can't even imagine anymore how it is, how exciting it is to push code to a large code base that doesn't have tests. <laughs> I actually I would um like to experience this again someday. <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm really happy to work on yeah. uh, well tested code bases that actually give me like some confidence in what right. I'm pushing pushing out there. Yeah. Well and that's the other piece is that the value of testing goes up with more people working on the project, right? Because then at that point, I can encode my assumptions. And then if you come in and you misunderstand one of the assumptions that I made when I wrote the code that's critical to its functioning and you break the assumption, it'll tell you, right? Instead of coming back later and going, why did this break? Who was the last person to work on this? How do I even track down where the problem is, right? It just comes up and says, hey, you failed two unit tests here and an integration test. So you're, you know, this is what you broke, right? Yeah. So. And this is why I also like, now we, we're getting a little bit into the nitty gritty details, but I really like to, in my test names, to really say what I expect, the assumption, mm -hmm. like you said it, like, Yep. The actual assumption of what should be returned and not like testing this yep. method. Yeah, test when I do this, I get this. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, yeah. Well, we're we're kind of toward the end of our hour. We've been talking for a whole hour. Can you believe that, Rich? No, um, no, I can't. <laughs> but yeah, I mean I could I could talk about testing and stuff all day. And I, I have to admit that. Some of the projects that I've started since I was the only person working on them, I didn't start them with tests. And I wish I had now, right? Because they've either gotten complicated or I'm looking to bring somebody on to work on some of the project, you know, to add stuff to it. And it's like, I don't even know how to begin to tell them what, what all is in here. And then the other thing is, is that um, there's a certain level of, of, complexity that I want to take out because it was like, okay, I started going down this road and then I figured out there was a better way, but I'd already committed part of the other solution and I'm not using it, right? And if I'm not using mm -hmm. it, I don't want anything to run it. And the best way to know that it's not getting run is to take it out. So, um, yeah. and I'm sure testing to a certain degree can help you with that too, you know, just from the standpoint of, you know, I mean, Rails makes it somewhat easy because usually things are named after what they are. And so it's like, okay, I, like in Top End Devs, there's an admin user class. And I combined the admin app with the user or with the regular app. And so nothing accesses the admin user anymore. So I just need to put in a migration to drop the table and rip it out because nothing touches it anymore. So I've got dead code in there mm -hmm. and we could talk about that too, but um, I don't know. Just it, it's kind of hard yeah, to track I, that stuff down. 
I will see this as an invitation to to fulfill my dreams of pushing code and in, into a code base that doesn't have a lot of tests. <laughs> if you have some lying, lying around. But but uh, it also yeah. goes back to <laughs> to to what we said in the beginning was well, you can test your loggers, you can test your APIs, you can test things that don't exist anymore. But right. ideally it would would be good to always keep your tests on on target and mm-hmm. to make them test behavior and test actual things yeah. that users will experience. Yeah, 100%. Let's go ahead and move on to picks. So I'll go ahead and start Let's us off. It. I've got all kinds of stuff to pick. Um, so last week was Mother's Day, or this Sunday was Mother's Day, this last Sunday. And uh, I got my wife a couple of things. She's really into gnomes. And so... Gnomes. I, I, gnomes. They're, they're the little like men the, the with the beards and the hats. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, um, I got her some gnome stuff. But the other thing I got her was, and, and this is kind of cool, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but uh, it's called Skylight. And uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can also get it directly from them. Um, I think I hit a ad on Instagram that gave me a discount. But I got the Skylight calendar. And I'll put a link in here. So what it does is it... And, and I can I can go into some of the other stuff too. I got some kind of funny related stuff to, to talk about. But um, anyway, it's a calendar fa- for the family, right? And then it also, it does chore tracking. You can put your shopping list in it. Uh, you can put a to-do list in it, right? So um, my wife and I are looking at remodeling part of the house, right? So we may put some of the to-dos in there for that. Um, what else does it do? Meal planning. Did I say that already? Um, anyway, so, um, it, and it just comes with a little stand. So you just sit it on your counter. Uh, the one I got is 15 inches. Uh, don't ask me how many centimeters that is. Cause I haven't, I don't have a clue. Um, 30 something so, probably, probably. So anyway, um, so yeah, so, you know, it's just, uh, it's kind of like an Amazon echo. It sits on your counter. Does all that stuff. You can also add pictures to it, and then you know, you can set it up so that when it goes to sleep, it'll rotate through your pictures or videos or whatever you put on it. Um, hmm. and you know, I have five kids, and I've been fighting them to get the chores done. That was another thing that was nice is that I had set up a uh, a spreadsheet where I was keeping track of when they'd done their chores. Um, it's more blank than I wish it was, um, but this allows them to just go into it and just check them off. And so when they think it's done, they can check it off. And then I can go look at the chore and I can let them know what they did, didn't do. And then I can go and uncheck it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's nice just as, as a way to kind of have some accountability on that stuff. And one thing that I figured out, cause initially I was just adding the chores to each day. And then I figured out that you can tell it to, uh, do it on a weekly basis because our chores rotate every week. And so, and some of the chores you only do like on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, like if you're washing a toilet or 
vacuuming a floor or something like that. And so I could tell it, hey, rotate this every, you know, every five weeks, right? Because the chores just rotate one kid to the next. And so, yeah, I have to set it up five times, right? But then I'm done. And yeah, it has all the right chores on the right days. So anyway, I'm pretty happy with that. Pretty excited about it. Um, it was like 300 bucks. So um, if you're looking for a solution to that, I'm I'm just so tired of fighting the chores and stuff. So um, yeah, I'm going to pick that. Mm-hmm. I usually pick a board game. Um, and I'm trying to think what I've played lately. Because things have been a little bit insane the last few weeks and I haven't played with my friends. I can pick one for you. Oh, go ahead. Well, um, you probably, maybe you picked one, uh, this one already sometime before, but I also have um, two kids. Well, the the smaller one is not ready yet for board games. It's not even two. The bigger one is Mm -hmm. uh, six. And it went quite well with him to play Carcassonne. Oh. It's a game where you uh, build little streets and uh, you build these roads and then you close them off. And the more of your own kind of um, colors are on, on the streets that you've built, that are close, uh-huh. the more points you get, and um, yeah, the the better. The, the sooner you get all the points that you can, the sooner you win. And it worked out well with with my kids, so that's a good one. Very cool. Now that game has been around for a really, really long time, and I have never played it. Yeah, it's so. good. Yeah, exactly. It's this one. I've, I've heard good the Junior Edition. Yeah, I think I'm going to type it into Board Game Geek, but it looks like, um, oh, it's only been around since 2000. Anyway, it, wow. it looks like it says it's seven seven or older can play it. So that yeah, means all of my kids can uh, play it. Yeah, we play the junior edition. I think it starts uh-huh. a little bit earlier there. I don't, don't know what the difference is, but. I don't know. Usually what happens is they take a rule or two out that make it hard. Mm-hmm. So th- then, then you know, the kids don't have to manage as much complexity in their heads to come up with a strategy oh, yeah. that can win. Um, it also means that it's pretty easy for adults to nail down and win. Um, but yeah, it looks like it's uh, Board Game Geek weights it at 1.9, which is, you know, kind of a family-friendly casual game. Um, thirty to forty-five minute gameplay, two to five players. So, yeah, very cool. Yeah, we played a game that has artwork that's similar to this, and I'm trying to remember what it's called. I might have picked it. So, if I think of it, then I'll pick it out. But otherwise, um, yeah. And then the other pick that I have. So, I, I have two more picks. One is is that I just bought a new camera. Um, it's right here, actually. And it looks so. If you're watching the video, it's a it's a Nikon mm-hmm. D7500. Um, the camera that I have used for the videos to date, that's up there, is a Nikon D5600. And 
so the 7500's a few years newer but the the feature that i needed is um if i so, and the reason that i'm not using the camera right now to record ruby rogues and use the green screen and everything um besides the fact that i need to change out my lights is that the d5600 will turn itself off after a half hour and you cannot make it go longer than that. And so if I want to record a longer video and use the green screen and everything else, then I actually have to tell it to wind the shutter to turn back on. Right? Okay. And so my screen will go well, black in the middle of the recording. Well, so, why is that? Um, I think they're worried about it overheating and stuff. The D7500... Um, you can set it to just not turn off. Now, they warn you, right, that it might overheat if you do that. But since the only thing I'm using my camera for is effectively for to be a really nice webcam, right, because it connects to the uh, Blackmagic uh, ATEM Mini, right, and then streams into my computer. So, you know, I, I can get away with having it on for an hour or so. And so that's one thing that I'm changing up. Um, I also bought some lights on Amazon. So I got the camera on eBay and they said it was just the base unit. Um, like that was it. it, said base unit only. It wasn't the base unit mm. only. You saw it had a lens on it. I don't know if the mm. lenses are compatible, but if they, if they aren't, then I'll just use this to do my other photography stuff. Um, you know, let my kids go take pictures with it. It was kind of an expensive camera. But anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, so I got it on eBay. So I'm just going to shout that out too. And then the other pick I have, so I did order some lights. And if you go to Top End Devs right now, by the time you watch it, I don't know if I will have changed it out or not. But uh, one of the issues that I had was that um, you can see the ring lights behind me if you're watching the video. And if not, I have ring lights behind me. Um, and then I've got some lights up when I stand up that shine on my head. Well, the problem is, is that the light's kind of harsh. And so what happens is, is if I'm wearing my glasses, um, and I, I like the way I look with my glasses on, I'd rather record, I look, I feel like I look haggard without them on. Um, it, it casts a shadow from the glasses onto my face. And mm -hmm. so, um, my issue was that, um, I needed kind of a softer light. And so what I wound up buying is I bought these lights. They're uh, Favtech. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, they had they had a kit with three lights in it. Um, so one is set up to kind of, or two of them are set up to be kind of your main key light, right? So if, if my right side of my face was going to be lit up, you're getting way more information than you wanted. I am rambling. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep rambling until I'm done. Um, but anyway, so um, the nice thing about the kit is that, yeah, so it has it has two of those key lights, and then it has a third light that's on a boom that you can use to light from the side, okay? And so, and then the other thing you probably ought to know is that in order to properly use a green screen, you have to light the green screen too, and you have to light it in a way that does not cast a shadow from you onto the green screen. Otherwise, you get a different color green and it, it's harder to make it work, right? And so I was running into issues there because I had to broaden the color of green that it would use. 
And so, and then the shadows on my face. Anyway, it was it was actually putting some of the background onto my face, which was weird, but I posted the video anyway. Um, and I'm super picky. So anyway, um, so these lights will allow me to light everything evenly because it's a softer light. And so it spreads. And because it's a softer light from a larger area, it, it, it doesn't cast a sharp shadow on my glasses, right? Onto my yeah. face because it'll light it from above it and below it. And so anyway, that, that's why uh, I got new lighting um, and I'm looking forward to recording some stuff. Um, I'm planning on recording a crap ton of the, um, uh, the Developer Career Momentum podcast, which is the one that you get when you enter your email address on the website. Um, and then um, the, the, other, the other thing I'm going to be doing is the Catapult Your Coding Career. Um, and I've recorded a few of those. I actually recorded some of them in my truck. Um, I guess I should pick those microphones too, because I'm the microphone I use in my truck just plugs into my phone, which is nice. Um, so I'll, I'll pick that too. But and so I'll tell you about that in a minute. But yeah, so th that's what I'm using it for, and that way I can put up a video with some kind of interesting background, and I can also, um. Uh, you know, I can also record whatever, um, however I want. I can do it on the podcast and stuff like that. So the microphone, um, it's actually a little lavalier mic. Um, I'll have to search my orders here real quick. Um, but what it is, is it, it has, and I, I'll hold it up to the camera, but I can just explain it if you're on audio only. Um, but it has a receiver and it's just this little, I mean, it's just a little piece of hardware, right? And it has an adapter for, for my iPhone, right? It has the USB-C like as an adapter. Dongle, yeah. And so I just plug it into the bottom of my phone and then it came with two lavalier mics that I just clip onto my shirt somewhere and then I can just talk at it and it sounds good. It, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like my microphone that I'm talking on now does, but if I'm out and about, then I can use it. And the thing that I like there is I'm also going to be putting more uh, videos up on uh, Twitter and TikTok and um, Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. And so those will be like 60 second videos that probably aren't going to wind up on the podcast feed, but they'll wind up as shorts and reels and whatever else you call them on YouTube and what have you. So, um, you know, it'll just be a, hey, I saw this and it made me think of that, right? And so, you know, you're going to get a lot of object lessons there. Um, I did one just talking briefly about something. I did, I did a test run of them and I thought they sounded great. And they were like 36 bucks, $36 on Amazon. So that was a good deal. Mm. Anyway, I am picking a ton of equipment that you probably all don't necessarily need to care about. But um, in case you're trying to get into recording, and if you get into top end devs, and you start doing what I recommend that you do, you will. Um, you know, these are all things that can, can kind of help you out. Um, I am going to be traveling to Amsterdam uh, in about a week and yeah. a half, two weeks. I think it's two weeks. Nice to have so, you here. 
Yeah, year. right. So, you know, yeah, I can just record stuff in the airport or whatever, right? I can just, you know, pop the um, the microphone on me and find a place where the lighting doesn't totally suck and, you know, record a quick video and just be like, hey, I'm on my way. Or, you know, hey, there was a lady that walked by that was wearing a weird T-shirt that didn't fit her right. And it made me think of testing or you know, whatever, whatever I come up with. So anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, so those are my picks. Sorry, I rambled a ton. Y'all asked for it, I guess. Oh, I haven't been on this show for a few weeks just because I've been fighting all this other stuff. So I'm back. Yeah. Rich, what are your it's picks? A whole, it's a whole science, right? With, with the video audio setup, uh, we are also having our Curious yeah. Coders um, Chronicles podcast where we mm-hmm. try to figure stuff out and well, we are doing it now for a couple of months and we are still trying to figure stuff out. So this right. is actually a very helpful workshop uh, and like recommendations. Maybe as part of your um, course there or like mm-hmm. RSS feed That's there, the plan. Maybe you could have like a session about setup and, and things like that. Which yeah, I'm planning sure. on having... so. On top end devs, I'm planning on having one of the series be about building your personal brand. And so I'll talk about this equipment and stuff. But if you get into it and you start doing things like I tell you to, you're going to start ugly, right? You, you're not going to go buy gobs of expensive equipment, right? You're going to go get mm. a 20 or $30 microphone that is better than your onboard computer microphone. And you're going to start recording, right? And you may wind up using yeah. the webcam that's built into your laptop, and that is totally fine, right? What what you'll figure out is as you go, it's like, oh, okay, I've done like 10 or 15 of these, right? And that's where I got with the video stuff because I've been doing audio for 13 years. I've been doing, or no, not 13. I've been doing audio for 17 years, but you know, the video stuff was all new to me and the green screen stuff was all new to me, but I wanted to have some fun with it. I wanted to try some new stuff. And so I started ugly, right? I started with the lights I already had, right? Because my wife got me the ring mm-hmm. lights for Christmas a couple of years ago. And I don't even remember what I bought these other lights for, but they just didn't work out, right? So I kept recording stuff with them until the other lights came, right? So the other lights are waiting to be set up. And so, you know, I'll spend an hour or yeah. two setting up the lights instead of recording because I have them now. But in the meantime, I mean, don't stress if you don't have the nice microphone and the nice, you know, whatever, right? It's, you know, uh, yeah. the, the microphone I started with was a $50 microphone. The microphone I use today yeah. is a $350 microphone. And the reason is, is because I use it all the time. And I got to the point where I was using it as part of my business. And so it made a lot of sense to invest in something that sounded really, really nice. But if you're doing it to build your personal brand and you just want to put content out there, and it's kind of a hobby, you don't need a $350 microphone, right? You need something that sounds okay, right? And most of the microphones that cost more than 50 or 60 bucks, they sound fine. And nobody's going to think, oh, he's on a cheaper mic, right? The difference between this mic and the other mic, honestly, you're probably not, most people are not going to hear it. And the people who do hear it are going to have like some really high fidelity headphones on and they're going to go, Oh yeah, this sounds crisper than the other one. If they're really mm. into it and they really care and 
that show starts right after this one. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't just let it slide with the, hey, I just picked all this equipment and and make it sound like you need it because you don't, right? I'm doing it because I'm going to be doing trainings with it. I'm going to be doing podcasts with it. I'm going to be doing YouTube videos with it, and I can afford it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, totally. sorry. Uh, I also, over. just <laughs> I can just sign that getting started goes over everything yeah. else and iterating yeah. and then improving over time is the way yeah. to go. But I will it, put content up direction. and explain how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, my picks also go to, into a similar direction. I try to make them quick. Uh, one of them is um, the Top and Devs Book Club. Uh, just as a little thank you for for setting it up uh, i had a lot of fun with the sessions that we had together um mm-hmm. and where we read the pragmatic programmer book mm-hmm. and we had a, like we had great conversations i think and then the the authors even were there and mm-hmm. i think before that uh, robert c martin was there so it's it's a yeah. pretty cool thing and yeah, I hope there's. Uh, you're doing right now the seven languages in seven weeks. Yeah, seven languages yeah. in seven weeks. And we had Bruce Tate. He actually came on the call on Tuesday, and he's oh. going to come on again at the end of the book when we do Haskell. I think it's the last one. Um, so he's going to come on mm. for the Haskell chapter, but. Um, yeah, some people are like, well, can I come in in the middle of the book? Yeah, you can, because you just read the chapter we're reading. Um, this book's a, especially yeah. pr- uh, approachable that way because each book's, each chapter's kind of self-contained as far yeah. as learning the language thing. So anyway, definitely come check it out. Um, if you use the code RubyRogues, then you'll, you can come do it for two weeks with us for free. And then after that, you know, you have to pay. But yeah. Nice. That's been super fun. Nice. That's been one of the best things I, I ever did for myself is just be able to talk to all you cool guys about this stuff. I love having conversations about this stuff. Uh, yeah, and my, my other pick would be coding challenges. I kind of, I liked them when I just started getting uh, programming, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of found them to be, or I thought maybe they're a waste of time. And I almost never or avoided the like interviews and interview processes that are heavy on coding challenges. But then I thought I'll make it like a mental challenge for myself to, to beat the hardest coding challenge out there, which, mm-hmm. or one of the hardest one, which is uh, the top tile coding challenge oh interesting yeah yeah it's a a top tile is a a freelancer platform Mm -hmm. and i tried this coding challenge three years ago i failed miserably and since then it's stuck in my mind and i just want to do it just not because i necessarily very much need to get on the platform but just to beat the coding challenge and to beat my own brain um, because it's also a specialized skill. It's a little bit of math, a little bit of puzzling, a little bit of this and that. And 
it's, it can be fun actually. And yeah, I'll be doing that. I'll maybe will be streaming that. Probably I should actually do uh, pick one language from the seven languages book and do it in this language. A challenge do a there prologue. Visit you. <laughs> yeah, and visit you guys there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. In the book again. Yeah, that's what I'm up to at the moment. And I, I don't know if I'll get this project done by the end of the year because it takes time and get into this whole mindset. Right. Holding challenges and but yeah, let's see how it goes. Yeah, makes sense. Well, um, a few other things I just want to throw out there if people are looking for you. It's richstone.io. That's where your blog lives. Oh, thanks. And yeah. Um What's your Twitter and GitHub? It's um, richstone.io is my Twitter. And richstone, it came before richstone.io. So richstone is my GitHub. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on and talking testing. I, I love di- diving into that. Um, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Till next time, much. folks. Max out.